This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Dr. Sheena Mason, we're back again. Yes. Thank you so much for um, meeting with me again. I've enjoyed our conversations and I'm excited to talk about all things philosophies of race. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've decided, uh, I guess most people don't know this, but we've decided that hopefully we'll keep doing these uh, periodically, maybe once a month or so these conversations. And, um, you know, we, we obviously won't just stick with racial terrain. We'll move all over the place wherever something comes up. But on this uh, episode, I really want to talk about something we talked about last episode. But when I listened back, it occurs to me that I'm not really sure I understand um, a certain thing, which is the difference between uh, saying that race is a social construct and being skeptical about race as an idea. Um, so why don't we just kind of reintroduce ourselves for those who didn't listen to our episode this past month. Uh, I'm Kevin Curry Knight. I'm teaching associate professor at East Carolina University in the College of Education. And you are? I'm Dr. Sheena Mason. I'm an assistant professor in all things Africana studies and history at SUNY Oneonta and also nice. the co-founder and president of Theory of Racistness. Yeah. Yeah, which I encourage people to to check out. It's a really interesting alternative to some of the variations of anti-racist approaches. And you would consider the, your approach of racelessness an anti-racist approach, right? It's just, I call, or would you not? Yes. So I call it anti-racist or anti-racism, but my spelling, um, so the, obviously the traditional spelling of racism, R-A-C-I-S-M, right? I spell it R-A-C-E. ISM yeah. or IST. Yeah. And so when I put anti in front of it, I'm speaking to to being against race pauseism. Right. So there is right. a, a difference and I haven't I'm unaware of any organization or entity who's doing it from this um perspective. Yeah. It's interesting because um I've just been uh doing the courses on the theory of enchantment. I forget that. Who's the founder of that? Chloe Chloe Valdery. Chloe Valdery. And um, I'm not sure if I'm finding it useful yet. Um, I'm not sure. Oh, you mean you're you're subscribed to to her? I have subscribed to it. I've done probably five or six of them. And um, I, I wouldn't like not recommend it to people, but I'm not sure. There's like the first five or six lessons it's hard to tell it's a lot of psychological reflection mm-hmm. um about kind of who you are like what kinds of things make you tick um and i'm not exactly quite sure where it's going i guess i'm a person who loves to know where like where where this is leading right right um but i assume it's going to be a very psychological uh, quote unquote solution to a sociological problem that's precisely the angle from which she operates yes yeah and i'm not sure i'm not sure if, I'm not sure how I'm going to feel about that, but I'm going to keep doing the the courses and uh, I wouldn't not recommend it to people, but I'm not quite sold on it yet. Got it. But we'll see. But um, yeah, so so in this episode, I want to give folks context because uh, we're going to be building a little bit on what we did last episode, but don't feel like you need to listen to the last episode to understand this one. Um, so last episode, we talked about different ontologies of race, which are like studies about what race is. When we say that someone is white, when we say that someone is black, what do we mean by that? And there are three schools of thought. Correct me if I get something wrong. There's essentially like, I guess you would call it naturalism, which is that race is a natural property. We're identifying something real that's in some sense has a natural basis. 
Then there's social constructivism or social constructionism, which is the idea that race isn't real in any biological way, but we've socially constructed something that race is, that it means something. It's just not, there's no biological uh, underbelly to it. And then the third, which is what you would consider yourself is a skeptic about race, which is saying that ultimately when you really dig down, try to figure out what we mean by race, it's not even a social construction. It's actually just, there's no there there. If you look behind the curtain, there's just nothing there. So we shouldn't even say that it's a social construction because it's just so deeply flawed as an idea. Is that pretty accurate? Would you add anything? Um, fairly accurate. I would say that social constructionists agree that race is not biological. At least they tend to agree that race is not biological. But I think they also would argue that and tend to argue from a biological naturalist perspective of race but they say that the the social constructiveness of race is ultimately what's what upholds these biological assertions if you will so kind of like how we view gender as a social construction but it's still viewed as being tied to biological sex right i kind of see the similarities there and then skepticism i would say um at least my skepticism I wouldn't say that there's nothing there. I would I say that the thing that people identify as race or races or racial, it's actually being misnamed as race or racial. It's actually culture or it's nationality or or it's racism masquerading itself. So there's something there, but the thing that we're calling it, that's not what it is. Right. So it's not that there's nothing there that we can pick out and say, this is, this is, uh, this adds up to race. You're saying that what we're, what we're picking out doesn't add up in the way that we, that we are saying it does. We're representing it as something that adds up where it really, really just doesn't add up to anything. Okay. Doesn't add up to race. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and I guess, what occurs to me when I watch the video from the past episode is that I'm not quite clear when I really try to drill down in my own mind, the difference between skepticism and social constructionism. Um, it doesn't seem like it fleshes out to me as a difference that is very, there's not much distinction that I see between the two positions. And I guess I, I wanted to talk to you again, because you, you know a lot more than I do in, in this area in terms of this, the theories of, of this ontology. So I wanted to figure out like, let me see if I can kind of pepper you with the questions that I generally, that I'm having and see if we can kind of flesh this out so that you can try to convince me. I guess the short answer is that the reason I don't think I see a difference is because philosophically I'm a pragmatist. Mm-hmm. And what seems to me to be the difference between the two is the skeptic is saying, look, what, what we're trying to construct when we, take these di- when we take these human differences and call them race is so sloppy that it can't really mean what we think it means. And as a pragmatist, I guess I want to say almost like in the way Ludwig Wittgenstein would talk about language, the late Wittgenstein, like a lot of our concepts are sloppy. That doesn't stop them from being valid concepts. It just means they're human. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, it does make sense. From um, and I can see why you would be confused. Then, and yeah. I'm glad I'm here because hopefully I can. Yeah. Hopefully I yeah. can. The, my goal is not to convince. My goal is to educate. Right. 
Um, hopefully I can educate you and viewers or listeners on what skepticism actually is, because by how you're talking about it, it's clear to me that, that, that the, the philosophical position of skepticism is unclear to you. Um, which is fine. It was unclear to me until I was in it. And then right. when I, I, I was like, wait a second, I'm not a constructionist anymore. I'm a skeptic. When right. I was able to identify that for myself, that's when I actually felt like I understood what skepticism was. Um, but as a self-proclaimed constructionist, eliminativist still, I, yeah. I had no, I didn't really fully understand either. Right, right. So you you went through probably a lot of the same questions I'm going through um, now, which will be good for me to kind of um, start those. So like the first way that I flesh out the problem that I'm having in my head, maybe this is the best place to start. We can talk about race using racialized language in everyday life fairly reliably in the sense that when I say Black Lives Matter, people know what that means. When we talk about whether or not white privilege exists, people know what that means. When uh, someone who's reporting a crime is asked, well, what, you know, what race is the, is the person who committed this crime? Like someone can say white and people know what this means. Now, when you drill down on it, it may not mean, there may not be a very watertight definition of what it means. But I guess my, my confusion, first of all, in saying that race isn't real in any sense, is that we know what it means when we use racialized language in life and we continue to use it. So if that's true, then how can we say that what we're referring to is not anything we can really refer to? Because race is not a neutral descriptor, right? Like the the examples you gave would be innocuous if those that same language didn't carry with it all that gets carried with it which is usually racist ideas manifesting itself as race now in some places like in nigeria or in jamaica you'll hear people from those places say how race doesn't exist there in the way that it exists in america what they mean is in places like jamaica they'll say it's an neutral descriptor it just talk you're talking about somebody's appearance or ancestry it's a sort of matter of fact um but as soon as they come to a place like the united states all of a sudden they are lumped in with this idea of race pride they're lumped in with as being oppressed with these ideologies that don't mesh and vibe with them because it's it doesn't exist in those ways in their um, home countries and so that tells us it's proof positive that in America, what is considered to be race, if it was a matter of fact, neutral descriptor, I wouldn't find up any point of contention with it. Right. But because okay. more often than not, what comes with that is stereotypes, essentializations, presumptions. The fact that to be black here is, is, we say it's a social construction, but we viewed it in very fixed terms. We have the one drop rule, which is rooted in enslavement and racism. Which we still very oddly abide by. We I still mean, it's, abide it's by it. pretty real, it's, even, even if it's not legally real. It's so odd. It's not. It's it's real in the sense that people think it's real, but it's a whole bunch of nonsensical yeah. pseudoscientific yeah. stuff, right? And um, actually, I just spoke with somebody from Nigeria a couple of days ago, and he was telling me that in his society, 
if I went there, I would be considered white right? because I'm American, not because I have light skin, but just because I'm American. He said, yeah. anyone who comes from overseas to Nigeria is considered uh, white. And what comes with that understanding of race is very different than, of course, from how we understand it here. So in a, yeah. if, if, it's, if race is relative and if racism doesn't exist everywhere as it exists in America, then how can, why should I be compelled to concede that there's any validity as in like real reality behind this thing? It's an apparition. It's like a, it's like me saying unicorns exist. Right. And if we're, if we're pointing to things and we're saying it's race or racial, but actually we're misnaming the thing that we're identifying, then that to me is more evidence that the thing we say exists doesn't exist, but actually what's behind it are these other actual things that actually matter like culture and things like that. Right. So let me, let me flesh that out a little bit. Cause I, I like the point you made about, um, well, whenever you use race, you know, it's masquerading as his neutral description, but really what it is is a whole bunch of biases, stereotypes, et cetera, packed on it. So, for instance, if someone um, calls to com- to report a crime, and the other person says, "Well," and, and the person on the other line says, "Well, what race is the person?" Right? You, you, it's it seems like it's a neutral description, but if you really dig down on it, it's like, well, their physical features were this way, and that's like that tells me that the person is this rather than that. Even though you can probably point to many counterexamples that say, "Well, all white people don't look like that." all white people don't have this physical characteristic or worse still, it might be based on what they were wearing. Like if, if the person was wearing something that we culturally associate with blackness, um, you know, we, someone might be more likely to say, well, I think they were black. Even if they have lighter skin, it's probably that they were black because they were wearing X, Y, Z. So I, I like that point that, that it's not a neutral descriptor. There's always something deeper down there. Um, but I guess what I want to ask is then, well, why for something to be a real categorization, whether it's social constructed, socially constructed or biological, does it have to be a neutral descriptor? Because the, the counter example that comes into my mind is pornography. We can say that something is pornographic. And when we do it, it almost certainly comes packed with a whole lot of stuff. Like the reason we don't call, you know, the the old Greek statues of naked women or men pornography is because we consider that art and that's different than pornography. Well, that's not a neutral descriptor. Pornography doesn't just mean that there is, you know, sexualization involved. It's usually a, a either a negative judgment. Or there's something in there that say that that prevents us from saying, well, it's high art. We wouldn't call pornography most of us high art, but we still would say there it's there. We would still say pornography is real as a category. I, I generally, I genu- generally think we would. I don't know if you would, but I would. But it's not a neutral descriptor. So, so what about an example like that? I guess to restate the question, does something have to be a neutral descriptor something to be considered real things don't have to be a neutral descriptor to be considered real 
certainly. And if we think we could name any number of things and point to the fact that humans invented it, right? Like the idea of nation, that's an invented thing, right? Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't then disqualify or discount the validity of the thing. As a skeptic, if I am about the life of dismantling racism, that's when the fact that it's not a neutral descriptor comes into the conversation. And when people, most social constructionists, the average constructionist, still operates from naturalist ideas about race, which have been discounted for a long time. And actually, the conversation I had with the um, man from Nigeria, he told, he admitted to me that when we first started talking, he was not, he did not believe that race was not biological. He thought that he thought that 100% like it's in the DNA, right? Because clearly he has this complexion skin and compared to a, a white person, he, you know, there's differences, the yeah. hair texture is different. So he points yeah. to all of these things about his biology and he was, he really was believed that race was biological. Um, we have people in American society who in one breath, they'll say it's a social construction, but it is rooted in naturalist ideas of what race is. And as you said, we could point to examples of where our own belief system should be troubled. It sh we should be encouraged to interrogate the concept of race, like with um, with Rachel Dolezal or Meghan Markle or really old school, Walter White, Charles Chestnut, Gene Toomer, my go-tos, <laughs> those examples of people's physicality, their biology, seemingly defying how they're racialized, you would, one would think it would encourage us and disrupt our beliefs in, in, in the fixed nature of race. And yet we know time and time again, that that's not how Americans have operated. And right. so that to me is the danger. When I think about undoing racism, if my position is that racism is race, that that racism masquerades as race, so that the thing that doesn't exist is race, the thing that exists is racism. And in that way, racism should be a clear indicator that I'm recognizing that it's not only not neutral, right, but that it's also inflicting some amount of violence on people disproportionately. And from my position, it inflicts violence onto all people who are within the racialist um, society. And we would right. do well for ourselves and each other to recognize that finally, instead of calling it race, calling it what it is, which is racism. And then that would better enable us and empower us to work toward actual solutions that that from a constructionist position is seemingly impossible mm, to, mm. to get to because as a constructionist, I then racialize myself in that way. I racialize other people in that way. And, and what comes with that is a whole lot of feelings and emotions. And, and sometimes those feelings and emotions and beliefs about race are not, don't bear out in the statistics. And that right. is a quagmire of constructionism for me. Now, my mentor, Jacoby Carter at Howard University, he's a constructionist eliminativist. Yeah. He's also a pragmatist. I consider myself a pragmatist too, so I'm glad you said that. And 
from his. Got, I got I got my boy William James. <laughs> yes, I see. There, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's like my favorite read of all time is William James. I think um, he would say that one can operate from within a category while seeking its destruction. But I think for most people, that you know, for most people, that's harder. You know, easier said than done. It's easier said than done. So as a skeptic, right. I'm outside of that thing. And if right. more people, I think more people would be skeptical if they were educated that it even exists when it comes to race. Um, with the right amount of education, they would shift their philosophical views and right. um, it would get us closer to the goal of lessening the violence of racism, which I think more people want than not. Yeah, so that makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense. It seems like there's this... Um, interaction between a theory of ontology and a strategy of what to do about the category, right? So ideally the two are separate. Like your view about what a thing is should have nothing to do with what you think should be done with that thing. But in some sense, what I, what I hear you saying is that in, in some way, one of the reasons you're a skeptic, I hope I'm getting this right. One of the reasons you're a skeptic is because as a strategy to start from social construction and say, well, we should abolish this social construct while you're still treating the social construct as real in some way is almost contradictory. It's either contradictory or bumps right up against that mm -hmm. contradiction. I mean, clearly you can say that like you can demolish a house while, while acknowledging that the house was constructed and is real, <laughs> right. but obviously that's a metaphor that doesn't apply. It's a physical metaphors, the, the brutest physical thing. Right. Like, I guess the analogy I would think of is there's, there is in some ways an ontology of sex. And then there's a question about what to do about sexism. And obviously, you know, I think most people who are, would consider themselves feminists would say, we can acknowledge the, the biological reality of sex, but seek to undo the sexism that, that gets overlaid on that. But then there is a wing of people probably inspired by Judith Butler and Anne Fausto Sterling, who say, no, in order to undo sex sexism, you really should or start from a place where you actually say, well, maybe sex isn't as real a thing as, as we, we want to say. Although the, they would still consider themselves social constructionists, I think. I think Judith Butler would. Um, yeah, I, so I don't know. Would you say that your skepticism partially is kind of strategic um it definitely wasn't i didn't intentionally become a skeptic i'll say that so it wasn't strategic in that right. sense it's right. just that the more i learned the more i observed the more i read the more i saw and the more i recognized through primarily african-american literature that what was being presented wasn't the thing i had been taught for numerous years that was being presented, which is primarily this upholding of race, the social constructed nature of race, the fact that um, race is inescapable in some ways, because you have characters like the passing characters, the tragic mulattoes, all of those, all of those um, tropes that you see in African-American literature. And my mind was looking at it in receiving the information in very different ways to the point where I, I came to conclude that what's being shown more often than not, but that doesn't get talked about 
is the how the undoing of race means the undoing of racism and once i came to that conclusion or that insight i hit the brakes as much as i could i wanted to hit the brakes because i did view myself as a social constructionist i did had no idea that there were alternative philosophies of race or ways to look at race and because i was a social constructionist i felt very emotional and like heartbroken at what my brain was telling me. Um, and I sat in my advisor's office crying about it. I said, I didn't, I didn't want to let go of my blackness, which I identified as my race. And the problem, part of the problems with social constructionism is for many people, Although we say race is a social construction, there is some kind of emotional weight that comes with that. And this is especially true for racialized Black people in American society. And as soon as somebody has come along, historically speaking, and troubled or complicated these ideas of, of race, racialized Black people have responded in such a way as to marginalize or exclude those voices for fear of, I think, the implications of that and what that means and what that would change about how they viewed themselves. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I was I was in that same quagmire as my predecessors. And I, you know, I my advisor just told me, you don't have to be the one who just stops calling yourself Black, you know, but explore this, write about it, publish, you know, share your ideas. And then I, so I did, I kept publishing and I kept sharing my ideas. And then I came to, I can, I couldn't tell you. It's like almost a year ago, I, something switched, clicked in my brain that made me realize the reason why I was holding on so hard to what I thought was my race, which was blackness. It was because I was assigning everything positive that I identified about myself into my idea of blackness, right? And it was my resilience. It was my tenacity. It was my ability to overcome immense adversity. It was my beauty. It was like all the positive things about me. So I assigned it to my blackness. So the idea of letting go of that and not applying that word, that language to myself, um, it was my culture. Like it it was hard, but something clicked. And I realized that actually has nothing to do with my race. What I is so in letting go of race and letting go of the language and stop and not racializing myself, I recognized the only thing I was letting go of was the violence of racism and that everything else I loved about myself remained, including my, my, you know, my pride and who I am and myself. So once that clicked for me, that's when I recognized my eyes felt opened and I recognized I'm a skeptic. If I wasn't a skeptic before I am, I can say this definitively now. And by that point I had been in touch with Jacoby Carter. So I learned about the other philosophies of race, thanks to him. And so I had language for it and it was cool because it was important for me because I recognized that there are, people like Anthony Apaya, who's a skeptic. So there are other people who are out there who exist, who are skeptics, right. which made me feel slightly less mad, crazy, you know? Um, but yeah, it was definitely a journey for me and it was a painful journey. And I, 
and I recognize that. And that is the thing that I honor and recognize and can appreciate and acknowledge is that it yeah. feels very personal um, to people because it is um, very personal to people. But I've, I still, it has still been my experience that the more people learn about philosophies, alternatives, and the more they learn, importantly, that racism is race, that racism creates race and not the other way around. And the yeah. more they can learn, it, like the, the complexity of my thought is hard to convey in just like a two, yeah. two session podcast. Now that's why I have my own yeah. podcast. Yeah, um, yeah. It's like, which we're cross listing this on, of course. Yes, so you'll, you, you'll hear this conversation in both places. The more they, the more they hear and the more they learn from me and the more I get to share, the more clear it becomes to people to the point where, it's, it almost doesn't even make sense to go backwards, right? It feels like a, ver a shift backwards because there's a way in which constructionism is set up in society, in American society, that keeps us in the trap, us being Americans, people in America. It keeps us very well in the trap of racism. It keeps us there. And once you're able to recognize that, once you're able to recognize the fruitfulness of there's a difference between pointing to a problem and internalizing it. Constructionists will internalize the problem more often than not because they are in the category and they see themselves as in the category, although it's constructed. As a skeptic, right, right, I see myself right. clearly outside of the category because I've liberated myself from that. So racist happenings and racist things right. impacts me far differently. And um, I recognize my own power and agency because I'm able to recognize, whereas most people still think in binaries of not just black and white, but binaries in terms of if society's doing it to me, I don't have a choice. So the individual gets lost, right? Yeah. Um, as a skeptic, I recognize the power of the individual and the community. Right. And so what I choose to do for myself is despite mm. or regardless of what society does to me, yeah. And so on and so forth. So it really has a trickle effect in the long term about how a person comes to think about things and how they happen. And I think it also has the fortunate effect of making people more clear eyed about why racism is a problem. When is it a problem? And so on and so forth. And, and what is it that we're actually getting at when it becomes a problem? Because you would say it's not actually race that is a problem. There's something else that we're using race as a stand-in for. Right. Always. Like when we say that, when we say that, just to use an example, like Clarence Thomas or some conservative isn't black, you know, you hear that rhetoric, like you're not literally saying, no one is literally saying that this person is not of a particular race. The, the idea of race there is a stand-in for cultural attitude of some kind. Politics. Right? It's ideology. Right. So, so, right. So, the, so the use of the word of the term black in that sentence, your skepticism makes you better able to say, well, what is it that you really mean? Because you could use another term. For all of these instances, you could use another term. Right. And be more You might clear. mean skin color. You might mean culture. You might mean what a person is wearing. You might mean something else about a person's phenotype that you want to racialize. Right. But there's something that, that is not what you're saying. Right. And yeah. that's also evidence of 
I point to the instances like that as also being as also racism, right? Because who gets to decide and dictate what a black person does, how a black person moves? I have countless students who tell right. me that they, you know, I had one student tell me that they work at they used to work at a coffee shop and people used to tell her that's so white. And it and it's like what kind of nonsensical thing or um a different student tell me that yeah. if they carry nice things like I guess nice as an expensive things, people tell them that they're right. trying to be white or that's so white. It's like who who gets to decide that uh, being black, even if we look at it as a metaphysical thing outside of biology, if we look at it as cultural, that being black is so limited within this box that precludes a person from being just like every other human from being free to be themselves, yeah. to move where they want to move, to think how they want to think, to look how they want to look, to have access to wealth, which newsflash racism to my mind matters most when it comes to socioeconomic status um, and things of that nature. Right. But it's like, right. we decide that black people don't belong in the same right. thing that they've been fighting for since right. forever. Um, and, and rarely do people pause recognize the irony and interrogate those ideas and it's like well that's because racism is masquerading itself as race in those instances yeah it also makes sense it makes me think about um one of the most frustrating parts of robin d'angelo's uh, book white fragility to me was towards the end she says things like you know to all of the white people i'm talking to the thing you should do is kind of move away from whiteness and white things. And then she kind of goes on to make this list of things that she kind of has in mind. And it's not even really clear the kinds of things she has in mind, but what she seems to have in mind is bourgeois. These are all bourgeois things. They're not. And I'm like, well, okay. So first of all, that's really unclear because certainly not all people who are racialized as white are, are bourgeois and certainly not all non-white people who are racialized in some other way are not bourgeois. Like to, for that to make sense, you would have to create this binary of like white equals bourgeois, non-white equals not bourgeois. That really weird. I, I, and you know, I had to like, really like twist my head in knots to try to think about like, how do I disentangle what is maybe good in this passage from what she's talking about, which is putting it in racialized language that obscures something that she's not saying. Yeah. And she's not, she's in the trap of racialist ideology because um, I was just going over Langston Hughes's The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain with some students yesterday. And mm -hmm. we looked at, we looked really closely at a passage where, well, first that, that piece opens up with um, Hughes talking about County Cullen, even though he doesn't name him. We know he's talking about County Cullen. He says, Cullen says something to the effect of, I want to be a poet, not a Negro poet. And then yeah. Langston Hughes translates that as, I want to be want a, to be white, a, a white poet. Boy. I want to be white. And I'm like, oh, hold up, wait a minute. So at all of these words, are de our default understanding is supposed to be that they apply to white people, that white people are the default. They are centered in quite literally everything and everyone else has to get hyphenated or some there has to be some kind of disclaimer to signal oh this is not a white person 
And so when a person has a desire to be written into just the word, that's that instead of that being translated as true racelessness, it's conflated with whiteness, which people conflate with racelessness, which is why I have to do a lot of educating to tell people what I'm actually saying. Right. But it's like the, the fact that uh, Barbara and Karen Fields point out how white is often not considered a race, but they're, but they're like newsflash. They are a race too. They're racialized too. Um, And so to my mind, the absence of race in any assertion, it should be, it should be the goal for more people. And it does not mean that a person is trying to be white. It means they are trying to be free from the trap of racialist ideology. And right. in the same piece, Hughes talks about how this desire to be white, he gives this metaphor or um, analogy of a, a family and the family is well-to-do. They the, the guy is a lawyer or a doctor. The, the, the wife is a social worker or a teacher. They have a nice house. They have two cars. And I was like, so what does this mean? And we dissected it together. And it's basically more proof about what I'm saying, which is that whiteness, what has, has become assigned to white or whiteness is a often more often than not a metaphor for power or having access to power in terms of financial you know, political, social power. And so because of the history of racism in this country, it makes logical sense that, that these metaphors would come to exist, but our acceptance of those, our acceptance of those ideas and our perpetuation of those ideas by using race in those ways, then it, to my mind, it's this paradoxical, um, it's this paradoxical inclination and desire to keep racialized black people in their place in outside of the category of having access to power, right? There's a difference from pointing to, to racism and the ways in which that manifests itself systemically and then accepting as truth that blackness is this particular thing and whiteness is this particular thing. Like, no, yeah. Yeah. And, and there's two reasons you, you would do that. There's two reasons you would racialize that idea of access to power. The first is the more pernicious, obviously racist one, which would be, we want to keep those people in their place. So we will say it's because you are black. But on the other side, you know, um, you know, the Black Panthers, Stokely Carmichael, the Black Power Movement appropriated the idea of race, and they use the same sort of racialization. Race is kind of your approximation of power. And they would say, well, we racialize blackness because we want to make sure our people are aware of why they're locked out of these power structures. It is because you are black, right? So so I guess there's two reasons you would want to racialize it. But yeah, what you're saying is that even the well-meaning sort of racialization that's like quote unquote, consciousness raising, the reason you're locked out of these power structures is because you're black, has the paradoxical effect of keeping people in the mindset of, well, I guess I'll always be locked out of these power structures, huh? Because there's nothing I can do about this very real category Yes, that applies to me. Yes. And and notice notice <laughs> in both examples, the the rhetoric was because you are black or because the people are black, right? 
So, and this is a pro a problem that the fields point out in racecraft, and this is a problem that I point out as often as I can. Um, the cause of the problems in American Im- imaginations has been race. It has been particularly those racialized as black. It is because I am black that this is happening to me. So translation, I'm the problem. You are the problem. And whereas us as a skeptic, I'm like, hold up. (laughs) Your racist ideas about me based on how you racialize me, that's the problem. You're the, which translates into you are the problem. And there is a dis- there is a distinction to be made that can get more of us further along if we step outside of how we racialize ourselves or how society does, regardless of how we are racialized. If we free ourselves from these categories, we can become more clear-eyed about the problem. Race isn't the problem. Racism is. And we talk about racism in terms of race because... because even subconsciously, we recognize that race and racism are the same thing. And if they are the same thing, then it becomes nonsensical to work within the category that's the problem to undo the problem, right? right? And, right. And, and to my mind, part of this, Kevin, is, again, this need to, to under the category of wokeness or progressiveness or liberalism, this need and desire and belief that people must racialize themselves because society does it to them, which in turns means that we need to feel angst and hurt and anger and all the things that being oppressed brings with it. Right. That, or we need to feel shame and guilt and all of these things that being the oppressor brings with it. it. It's not, it becomes nonsensical because that is not liberation as a skeptic. I'm able to look at a racist happening and recognize its wrongheadedness, right? Without all of the pain and the angst that I once used to used to have with, with these incidents, you know? Right. And I hear people, I don't know, did you see the ASU incident? I should have sent it to you. Oh, I did. You did see um, it. Geez, we should, we should, <laughs> let's digress and just briefly go over what that was. Yes. It was just, pure silliness on a whole bunch of sides yes so how do you see it from your like if you're giving the summary what happened okay um i will i will admit i first saw it on Brittany king's podcast when she gave kind of a rundown of it because i wasn't really aware of it so arizona state university so let me know if i get this any of this wrong um arizona state university uh they have a diversity center i don't know what it's officially called and it's a it's a kind of a space for kind of diversity and inclusion. And there were two folks, two uh, males sitting at uh, a table who w- you'd fairly say they would be racialized as white, um, who had like stickers on their computer about like police lives matter or something like that. I suspect they were there kind of looking for something. I, I don't know why they you would be in that space with such outward facing signals. Um, that you're pretty sure people would probably disagree with there. And two people came up to them. I'm not sure the racialization. I think one of them is, would be racialized as black, but first generation immigrant, I think with Ethiopian parents, I think they found out. And then another person uh, 
said, Hey, what are you doing? Can you move your seat? Can you like sit somewhere else? There's a whole bunch of places you can be. Don't be here. This is our space. I think they maybe even use terms like that. Turned on the camera as we all want to do in social media times. We turn on the camera. Let's watch the train wreck unfold. And I think everyone can imagine from there the train wreck that unfolded. The guys refused to leave. They said, I thought this was a place of inclusion, wink, wink, because I think they knew what was going to happen. Um, everyone got really angry. Nothing got accomplished except everyone had great fun on social media. Is that, did I get it? Did I get it right? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much the rundown. So, um, to clarify, it was a multicultural center, right? Um, now here's the thing. Um, many people who consider themselves to be woke or liberal or progressive, would look at that video and be very much inclined to be on the this side, I put that in quotation marks, of the racialized students of color, the black student, right? Um, and kind of like what you said, a lot of people make the presumption that those racialized white students were looking for trouble because after all, they came with the Police Lives Matter sticker. Now, when I watched the video, which I watched it several times, um, the thing that how long is the actual video the video is seven minutes it's seven that's minutes. long yeah. so wow. you know you you haven't seen the whole video if you're watching because there's a version out it's like two and a half minutes but there's a longer yeah. version yeah i haven't seen the whole so this the thing that stood out to me the most is this idea that again i don't have a choice she said i don't have a choice to be black police have choices because they can choose to be a police officer and they can choose to wear a badge and then murder me and people who look like me and you're condoning that with that sticker and most people wouldn't it stop to interrogate any part of what she's saying they would just take mm -hmm. it as fact mm -hmm. and truth but how how ironic is it that what's supposed to be empowering Mar marginalized peoples according to their own words is is something that's the mindset that comes with that so-called empowerment is quite literally indicative of the opposite of empower empowerment but I right she's, she's in some sense reminding herself of her own subjugation and oppression by adopting the term that she's saying well i don't get to choose this term so it's not really empowering not only it's that. more like you're reminding yourself of a subjugation that you you may well experience, but I mean, you're saying it's because of this thing that I have no control over. And it's like, wow, I mean, that that thoroughly takes away any sense of agency that you could have. Yes, and regardless of whether or not those students intended to you know, be inflammatory or antagonistic, that's beside the point because who holds the power with that scenario? I would say it's not the students who are kicking those students with a sticker out. It's it's the people, the people who actually benefit from this kind of divisiveness and the divisive ideas that are being espoused and promoted through that video. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, that sticker "Police Lives Matter." We could say that it's indicative of the kids' racism or racist beliefs or whatever, but is that really true? Is that is that really a fact? Because one of the students was saying the entire time, like, I'm not racist. What are you talking about? I'm just here to do homework. Okay, fine. But even if he is racist, right, right. you're giving your power away by 
by losing it. There was no conversation. It wasn't it. There were so many points where they could have de-escalated the situation, but they didn't. Everyone, everyone could have. Everyone. Every step of the way, everyone could have in that situation. But it didn't get de-escalated. There could have been actual fruitful conversation. So the intent was just to punish the guys with the sticker. It's just a sticker, mind you. But the words that the students were saying were things, things such as, you're condoning my murders. You know, we are the most marginalized. We are the most oppressed. You can go yeah. anywhere on campus. We only have this space, the multicultural center. L- listen, let's follow this right. logic. I asked my students the same day we went over this video, actually, I asked my students, where's my space on campus? And I get Ooh. blank stares, right? And they're like, uh, I said, Your I said, I said, we have a multicultural center, right? They said, yes. I said, okay. Um, it's been renamed to, it's been renamed, but it's still the center. It's like the center for social justice and inclusion or something like that. Um, I said, um, is this, do I belong here? Like, is this a space that I'm allowed? And, and they were like, yeah, I said, I belong wherever I go. I belong wherever I go. And wherever I go, I'm centered, not because I'm like egocentric or whatever, but because wherever I go, I belong. And I hold Mm. on to that power for myself. And whether you think I belong or you don't, that's your problem. That's not my problem. I'm not going to make it about me about my race, which is making it about me, that is 100% your problem. And while I might wish for you to be a more loving, compassionate, empathetic human being, it's still your problem. Right. I'm not going to just play your the, the game you want me to play simply because you think that's the game we're supposed to play. Right. And and if if this if racism wasn't part of this, if it was any other context, when we teach children we teach them sticks and stones we teach them you know bullies they don't matter they just have low self-esteem or something like that i don't know what we tell children about bullies but we we do tell children generally speaking not to give their power away right to other people who are being mean but as soon as racism is part of the equation all of the rules that apply everywhere else all of a sudden don't apply here and i think that that again is if if that student knew about skepticism, if she knew about eliminativism, if she was educated about alternatives to how to view herself in the world, she could have recognized that that sticker as, yes, maybe this is indicative of how this person thinks, right? Maybe, maybe. I emphasize the maybe. But it could also be that the student's mom is a police officer you know like it could also it could also literally have nothing to do with racism so let's start there sure. uh, yeah i mean what what one of the things that occurred to me when i was watching the video and before whenever we talk about race and police and all those discourses is number one i mean there have been two books that have been written both by law professors i believe about the history of particularly black people in under-resourced cities urging people to towards tough on crime related sorts of bills. And like we could argue as I would that those bills were misguided and maybe those people thought that what would happen is not what actually happened, but it's just simply not true that, you know, black people or people racialized as black don't support, you know, like wouldn't have a police lives matter 
thought or approach or sticker. It's just historically, it's not true. And I don't think contemporarily, I don't know if there's studies on this. I hope there are surveys on this. I don't think, I doubt it's true now. Oh no. I doubt it. Because we don't, because we, we being racialized black people, we don't all think the same. And although, you know, we could point to 5,000 instances of where, you know, because the student was tying it to white supremacy, white nationalists um, in the ASU video. And we could point to examples where that plays out as being true. We could also point to just as many examples of where it's not true. But there's also something else going on with what she's saying, because she's talk she's taking that sticker as a direct reflection of what the student thinks, which there's no evidence for. It's just a presumption because he's racialized as white. And then to add fuel to the flames, she's talking about how she and people who look like her are hunted in the streets by police officers. That same narrative that I'm sure I don't have to remind everyone of because all we have to do is turn on the TV and we pretty much see it, right? But when we actually, if somebody was interrogating those kinds of assertions and interrogating not in a pejorative way, but asking just simply asking questions, we would come to find that the numbers to date don't support those kinds of ideas. It is not happening. So, so I I looked up a couple days ago um, to make sure that I that the numbers hadn't drastically changed in a way that I wasn't anticipating or something, but it was something like 111 racialized black people to date had been shot by officers, which that that would be from this calendar year, from this calendar year, right from the start of this calendar. And that is not that and 111. No one would call that an epidemic. I'll say like, like, yeah, you can say like this, if a hundred and some people had died of COVID, from the start of the year, we would say we're, we're succeeding against this epidemic. Right, right. right. It, no one would say that's an indication of an epidemic. Right. Now, that's 100 people too many. Well, but well, it, the, it, the statistics that I saw, they don't make clear how many of those people died. And then certainly we can't say that just because a shooting happens, it's never justified. Right. right. And so that number, but, but that being said, even if I said, oh, every single one of those shootings were unjustified, it's still, that's, it comes down to less than one person a day, right? Compared to prior years, I want to say last year was something like 250. It's, it's never gotten above 200 and around 250. 250. I've never seen a number higher than not, 250. Not, you know, um, not, not, I wish not it was lap. zero, but that's not the reality we live in. And it's like, just because, just, just because the way the media is portraying this and depending on what news sources you actually expose yourself to, it does make more people than not feel even that much more strongly about their positions, which is to the detriment of our human society, because there's a way in which she's telling herself all of these stories. She's blaming it on the fact that she's black. She's taking her choice and her agency away, her power away. And people are, are praising, uplifting and privileging this way of thinking and moving in the world. And I'm like, no, we have to, we have to be able, my skepticism allows me to help students who have asked me um, sincerely to help them stop falling into the traps because as it stands, if something happens, their whole entire worlds are rocked. And it could be 
on the grand scheme of things, it could be the most inconsequential things that seems like a world ending thing every time something happens. And I'm like, there is a way that we can point to the problem, identify it very clear eyed, but not internalize it to our own detriment. There's there's so much literature okay. on mental health and the detriment that fighting and resistance and stuff like that has had on mostly African-Americans in American history. And it's like, that's not liberation. And you cannot convince me that it is. That's yeah. not yeah. liberation. I guess to, to go back to the original questions I had about the difference between skepticism and social constructivism, this is really helpful because um, I, the way I'm seeing this, this now is like the, what I want to ask I still have this kind of lingering concern about, I definitely understand, and it does sound like in some sense, skepticism is strategic, although not in a deliberate or, or like bad way, but it is sort of strategic. Like if you want to eliminate this idea from his, from the future, we have to get used to seeing it, not just as a social construction, but as a just flat out fiction, as a flat out fictitious representation of something. But what I want to say still is that why can't you see it? Why couldn't you see it as a social construction, but not internalize that social construction the way you're you're saying is often internalized? The way I'm thinking about it is like this. Um, I am an atheist and I believe that God is a social construction. I believe that God is a historical idea that has been developed to explain a lot of things. We've created cultures almost around this idea. It's so locked in that it is a social construction. Now, of course, I still think it's a fiction, but I think it's a, a fiction that has some social consequence because, and I don't take the step of saying it's a social construction, therefore I apply it internally to my life. Like when I say that, you know, God is a social construction um, that a lot of people around me believe in, I don't say, and therefore because it's a social construction, I'm going to internalize it and, and have God inform part of my worldview if that makes sense. I see it as like a social construction, but as something that we all kind of made up and I can see through, um, you know, of course that's a controversial statement, but, but I can see through and I'm like, let everyone else do their thing with this social construction. They think it means this. I think they're wrong. But again, I don't take the step of internalizing it. Mm -hmm. I can still see through it. Why couldn't you take that? Could you take that, uh, worldview about race and be coherent? Could you yeah. say, well, I don't think it's a fiction or I don't think it's like nothing. Right. I think there is a social thing it means to say that someone is black or white, but I still see that thing as a fiction. Yeah. So, I, and I don't, and I can see through that fiction. Yeah. I think that identifying yourself as atheist automatically in my mind makes you a skeptic. You are a skeptic about religion, but you're still able to see how for other people, it's more than that. Right. And in that way, it's rendered real for other, other mm. people in a socially constructed way, which I don't see that as being any different from my position as a skeptic. I recognize that for other people, it's very real. It's very meaningful. It being race, right. The idea of race is it's real. It's meaningful. It's propped up in a certain way. I can see through it. <laughs> and there are some other skeptics who can see through it, but for, for the average person, that's not going to be, that's not, they're not there yet. Right. Okay. So I think I've arrived at where you, where 
where I think um, you're differentiating your skepticism from social constructionism, and I think this is really helpful. So to, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you're saying that to be a social constructionist about race not only means to believe that race is a sort of social construction that has does some real work somewhere in our language in the world, but in some sense you're saying to be a social constructionist means you almost have to take the step and say, and this category also applies to me and I should probably think of myself as being underneath this category, as being bound by this category. Whereas to be a skeptic is to say, well, you can you can think technically that it's social construction, but it's a fictitious social construction and I am not going to place myself under a fiction. Is that? Yes, is that and to, like to that? extend, I think that was very well articulated and I wouldn't um, contend with that um, those conclusions. And where I would just push the envelope a little further is, Whereas your example of, of atheism points to um, the sort of meaningful role that religion has in the world and stuff like that for some people, it has social consequences, I think is, what, is how you put it. Um, my position as a skeptic that I think gets missed, I don't know how because I say it incessantly, but I feel like it gets mm -hmm. missed because the, the primary focus still continues to be on the race part racism is race to my mind with my knowledge racism is yeah. race and so racism has the social consequences and if we can reframe it in and rephrase it in that way then of course it i think it would make sense to more people for me to for me to discount the practical utility of putting myself in the category of racism right yeah. if we it now if we flip racism with the word race then that then that it's harder to see that. But if we can, since I say it's the same thing, if we can switch race with racism, then nobody, fewer people, I won't say nobody, but fewer people would have the boldness to ask me why I don't insist on putting myself in it or why I don't see social constructionism as a valid way out, right? Because right. then you might run the right. risk of being right. potentially racist. Right, because your answer would be like, well, so your answer would be like, wait a minute, you're telling me that I have to use racist categories and that's the only way that I can get beyond racism is to apply racist categories to myself? Yes, because remember we spoke about <laughs> Kendi and we kind of said, I think part of the quotes that you read from his book, it was basically yeah. him saying the same thing, like that, yeah. okay, I recognize yeah. this is social construction, yeah. but to undo racism, I have to work in the social construction. But our general sense is that he wishes for eliminativism and we're like wait a second like make it make sense that's right. that's me as the, <laughs> that's me as a skeptic and i see you know pe people who are new to my ideas because admittedly my voice and voices like mine are not generally speaking amplified right yeah. and so there's a way in which i get this type of question often and i look people in eyes and I, I asked them like, so, so you get to decide how I see myself or how I define myself or the category. Don't you think that's potentially yeah. racist? <laughs> have, you, um, have you read uh, Randall Kennedy's book? I just recently read, um, it's a book he wrote a while ago called sellout. Oh yeah. I have it. I haven't read it yet though. He has a really good, um, it's really interesting. It's like the history of how this idea of the sellout has come about. Mm. 
And it's really interesting in the first chapter, he says, like, I'm not against the idea of racial boundaries, even though I think this idea of the sellout is pernicious. And he says, he kind of makes a historical case. He says, look, there's an understandable reason why people who are currently racialized as black have come to see themselves that way. And it's because they've been a distinct minority group that has been bound together generally by a certain sort of oppression that not only comes from being very powerless, but comes from being in the numerical minority. Right. So if you're in the numerical minority and you're powerless and you're constant and you're being reminded of that, you know, day in and day out, at some point you're going to say, we're going to create boundaries of this group and we're going to police them because we want to make sure because we need numbers. We need solidarity in order to fight this. We are going to make sure that nobody steps out of line. Because if you step out of line, that's one fewer you, you are now either. You know, in the case of, let's say, Clarence Thomas, people say, well, you, Clarence Thomas is now speaking, quote unquote, against our interests, and that can harm us, which is, we're already harmed group. Or if too many people say I'm not going to refer to myself as black, that means that our numbers diminish and now we're even fewer and less powerful than we were already. So I think someone like Randall Kennedy would respond and say, yeah, but, you know, Sheena, what you're doing is you are potentially, you know, depriving this already relatively powerless group, even less power. And if your ideas get out there, he might say like people could use them in, 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 in bad ways against, um, against this historically powerless group. That's only true, or I would say primarily true. If you believe in the fallacy that racialized black people think a particular way and have the same goals and same way of viewing and being and seeing in the world such that numbers matter. And it's also primarily true if you fall into the trap of viewing those same people as powerless. There's a way in which my theory of racistness helps people liberate themselves from binaries in ways that's a very challenging thing. But because we tend to, we being Americans, we tend to talk about so many aspects of our lives in very binary terms, very black and white pun intended terms. Um, it, it is such that while I, I recognize and say that society racializes us and, and we racialize ourselves, people often talk about it. If you're on the left, you talk about only what society is doing to you to the, to the detriment of the individual and the individual's power. And the fact that there is no society without individuals. So to, to suggest that an individual making a change for themselves cannot have an influence on the larger society is just a fallacy to me. And it's, it's like, how it's nonsensical. How does that even make sense? But then add to that, if you are on the right, you, the tendency is to hyper-focus on the individual. It's the opposite problem because, you know, binary. And so they focus on the individual to the exclusion of the community and the societal oppressions that do exist, right? So theory of racism and and my um, philosophical positions on the topic of racism then further enables me to recognize that both are true. Both can, both are true in the sense that they both need to happen in order for success. And because I also recognize this fallacy of 
identifying racialized black people as always being together and having the same kind of goals or and being powerless because of their race and all of those narratives because i recognize the fallacy in that i recognize and i discount the idea that racialized white people or people who are racialized in other ways cannot or will not align themselves with the same interests as racialized black people we know that that is histor- is historically false we mm-hmm. know that um we know that there have been times in human society where racialized white people have overthrown governments because the racialized white and black people of the community voted in the same way and they didn't want that to happen so they overthrew the government i think this was north carolina they overthrew the government they inserted their own um politicians and then they started creating this propaganda this media campaign about this um this this racialized black beast who was raping white women and they put that information out there and the next thing you know and the next time it's time to vote there's a separation so i don't i see past that i see through it i recognize Mm -hmm. how in us continuing to view ourselves in these black and white ways there are very few people who actually benefit from that division from that perceived division yeah, I, I think I think this is where like my pragmatism kind of gets in the way a little bit because it it sounds like something you said is early on uh, against Kennedy's point was that the idea of kind of the, that border of like these are black interests, so to speak, you said would only hold good if you held the fallacy of like a homogeneity of black interests. Right. And it's not clear that there's a homogeneity of black interests. And, I guess what I'm tempted to say is like sometimes categorizations can be valid and not be kind of and not be essentialistic. Like it, you don't have to say that all people of a certain class or group are are will all be uniform to say that a classification scheme works. Like the one that I always like to use and I thought about when I was thinking about like the difference between skepticism and social constructionism is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, Like a lot of psychiatric disorders, there's two really interesting things about this for our purposes. Number one, there is no pathogen that we know of that causes ADHD. It's all symptoms. It's all symptoms all the way down. If you have to say that you have ADHD isn't to say you have anything except a set of symptoms. And number two, the set of symptoms is so large. There's two sets of symptoms. There's one for the the attention deficit part. There's one for the hyperactivity part. To have the attention deficit part, you need six of nine of, of a list of symptoms. To have the hyperactivity part, you need six of nine of that list of symptoms. So in a strict sense, there's nothing that that everyone who has ADHD has in common. There's no one symptom that all of them have. I don't know what the math is, but six of nine plus six of nine, that's a lot of permutations. There's a lot of permutations. So any two people with ADHD could be very different in their symptoms. That doesn't stop us from saying that there is such a thing as it means to have ADHD, that there isn't such a broad categorization you can make. Does that make sense? Yes. So you're not saying like there's no homogeneity. You're not saying that there's homogeneity here. You're just saying that there's enough rough similarity in a family resemblance sort of way. It's it's a perfect example of Wittgenstein's idea of family resemblance. There's enough family resemblance of this group of people that it means something 
to say we can categorize them as having ADHD. Sure. But the difference is with the category of race that while we can say that there doesn't need to be some kind of essentialization happening, that's not how it plays out in actual reality. And because we continue to think along these racialist lines, it precludes us from recognizing that more racialized white people would be aligned with our interests if we could break down and dismantle and undo the category of race to begin with, such that we don't need the statistical majority of racialized black people. Why is the burden always put on the group that is arguably most negatively impacted by the system of racism? It that it just per- continues to perpetuate, to my mind, this pernicious cycle of believing that it is our own burden to uplift ourselves and do a thing and solve the problem when it's it has become virtually impossible because, again, although the category of race wants to pretend and gives people the impression that there is homogeneity happening there, that there is this sort of monolithic group, that's not actual reality. So we if we liberate our minds from that that framework and from that way of thinking about ourselves and other people. And we look back to history to see how it hasn't always even been this way, then we should be heartened and inspired to work toward the idea that indeed, this so-called black cause is not a black cause because again, that's saying a particular thing about blackness that doesn't exist in as applied to all racialized black people, right? So that other people who are racialized in other ways are actually, it's its its a question of how the race specific precludes people from thinking in more universal terms. And if we are divided, then we remain conquered. And so if this racialist ideology is actually only benefiting the top 5% of society or something like that, a very small percentage, but it pretends to benefit more, it pretends to benefit the majority, if we lift the veil off of our eyes and we would be able to see ourselves in each other, we would be able to see that it's us versus us, except Mm -hmm. instead of us versus them, And we would be able to see that we would have the numbers that we're striving for. And more people than Mm. not already believe or want or desire a society in which race doesn't matter, which translates into racism not being a thing, right? So we have the numbers. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is this this part here might be a conversation for another podcast, but I want to open up a can of worms here because. Um, I'm not always convinced that, well, because I'm not always convinced that people who say they don't want race to matter, don't want race to matter. Like the way I say it is like, um, you know, I have aversions to the progressive kind of platform about kind of a, a sort of new race essentialism. But then I also, when I look at some of the people usually on the conservative side of things who say like, but race isn't supposed to matter. So we shouldn't think in those terms. They do certain things that convince me that that argument is probably a, a subterfuge for something else. Like, you know, some of those, um, you know, attempted bans of certain race conscious books in schools right. um, because their book, the books are divisive. Like, but if you really didn't want race to matter, you wouldn't phrase this as, well, it's not going to teach our people to be proud of their history. Like, you know, some, some folks are like, you know, they want to ban the 1619 project. And when you ask them why, they say because this is divisive and it's going to teach white people to like not be proud of, you know, who they are. And I'm like, but you are framing this as an us versus them thing now. 
Like you are framing it that way now. And maybe the folks on the other side are framing it that way too, but you're framing it that way. It's not, the 1619 project is not a, a, a divided history. It's, it's a history about white people just as much as a, a, about, about black people, et cetera. Right. Does that make sense? It, yeah. It, there's a sense that I have that, that, that some of the folks who are saying colorblindness maybe aren't either being genuine about that or maybe it's really their way of saying, no, we really want to not think about it and we really want to like not have to think that um, there was any division this, in this country at all because we don't mean colorblindness. We mean that we just want our way of life to work out. I think that against theirs, I hear you. And that's an argument that plenty of people make. So it's not a new argument for me and I'm glad you're bringing it up. Um, this again, reflects the very binary way we're thinking. We have certain people generally speaking, leaning right, who feel like in order for a person to love America, there can be no criticism, there can be no examination of her shortcomings. Like we just have to have blind love and blind patriotism. Then and black and white history are separate. Because if you introduce anything like the 1619 project, you all of a sudden will hear, well, that is that's that's black history. It's like eh, no, I mean that's that, that's that's yes. an attempt at all history. But yes, which again supports and gives evidence to my point about universal versus race specific. Because so long as we continue to encourage people to segregate even our histories, this yes. continues the problem to persist. Yeah. But then you have people who lean, who tend to lean left, who will say, um, who will express some a healthy amount of disdain distrust skepticism and sometimes hate like in the asu video the student said f america right f america mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. only genocide right. and slavery and all this other stuff so that is something that gets passed on through generations it gets it's something that gets passed on through even through the how we're teaching the thing because again we are not giving people the space or the option to it to separate themselves from the category to examine the the categories we are we say that we're doing that and we're not and this is all just evidence of it and so i find that more people than not who yes tend to to lean right the people who espouse ideas of colorblindness and, and things like that racistness might land a little easier with them because they're connect they connected with colorblindness right but um but one needn't and probably shouldn't miss the radical nature of the theory of racistness of adopting these other philosophical positions because we haven't actually done it in american history we haven't done it yet we haven't tried it and mm. It is my sincere belief that people are more good than they are bad and that our shortcomings are largely because of how we have been educated or miseducated in this country and that the problems persist and, and everyone is participating in upholding the problem. And so thereby, we, we one needn't be operating from a position of good faith if we presume or question you know, their intent with these things. I find people to be of all persuasions to be very compelled by the evidence when it's put in front of them, because part of the resistance, at least how it's articulated, part of the resistance is to indeed how race continues to be taught in this country. It's taught hand in hand with racism. You have these privileged walks, which I think are really atrocious. You have um, what's being called CRT being prop propagated through um, 
through primary education and people are saying things like you're teaching my white child that they are a specific fixed homogeneous monolithic thing and you're teaching my black child the same thing but on the other end of the spectrum and by teaching that those categories you're upholding the hierarchy you're teaching the hierarchy you're teaching racism and if it's unclear i would agree I would agree that in teaching the categories in these, yes, fixed ways, while we say it's a social construction, we are teaching racism. And so more people, regardless of their political inclinations, would do well to take heed and listen to any part of what I'm saying, read any number of my publications, go to my website, read my book when it comes out, hopefully, hopefully March. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. It helps all of us. It helps all of us piece by piece out of the trap. It helps us out of these traps, the binary ways of thinking, the us versus them, the love versus hate. It helps us to see how both things can be true and often are, right? But importantly, it helps us to solutions, which is what people need because there's so much lambasting, shaking our fists in the wind with no solution, no alternative. The, this is an alternative, this being skepticism and eliminativism. And that's why people tend to tend to take notice or are taking notice about it because they're like, oh, snap, this actually solves a lot of my contentions with the other guy, you know. It's funny because um, one of the books, I don't know if I mentioned this last episode, but um, Albert Murray, yeah. the jazz and blues critic, wrote a book called The Omni-Americans. <laughs> I think I did mention it. I don't know if you... I mean, you've been busy, so you probably haven't had a chance to look through it. But I was reading his book, The Omni-Americans, at almost the same time I was reading Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility. And they're, they're two very different people. But in some sense, they said something very similar, except Robin D'Angelo used racialized language and Albert Murray used less racialized language. It was still racialized, but it was less adversarial. Murray's contention is that we're all, quote unquote, Omni-Americans. Um, and his contention is that while he says they're you know, black Americans, white Americans, he said, like, you all are much more similar than you care to realize. And white people don't want to realize it because they don't want to, quote unquote, degrade themselves. This He was writing in the late 60s, I guess. And uh, black people don't want to realize it because they have a distrust and maybe inherited distrust, rightly or wrongly, of, of white people. But he says, if you look at each other, you all are pretty similar. There's no such thing as a white life and a black life. In America, if you make a list of all of the things you do every day, you will find a huge, it's, if it's a Venn diagram, you'll find more in that middle space than, than you really thought. So Robin D'Angelo says it this way. She says, white people let go of white things. Now, I found Murray's way of thinking about this more fruitful, and I I feel like they're saying much the same thing. They're saying if you really look at your life, you are racializing yourself and your behavior and your codes of conduct and your thought about yourself much more than you need to. If you really look at the things that are in your house, in in your car, in your radio, in your neighborhood, there's just no such thing as being white and, and being black in the way that you want to think there is. And if you care to really look at the things in your life, you will find out how untrue those categories are about you. But yeah, D'Angelo did it in a really adversarial way. She said, white people, the problem is your white things. Albert Murray's saying, no, white people and black people and every people, the problem is that you are refusing to see all of the things in your life that don't 
accord with that racial breakdown. I thought that that was a really interesting thing. And when I thought about it, I felt like, yeah, they're saying a very similar thing. It's just they're saying it. I think D'Angelo is using much coarser and less helpful language. Yeah. So I haven't, uh, admittedly, I haven't read the book, but if anyone watching this is on, is on my channel, you'll see I just did a conversation with Greg Thomas, who's the hmm. CEO of the Jazz Leadership Project and an avid Charles Murray fan. I'm participating in an upcoming event he has coming up. Um, not Charles Murray, Albert Murray? Albert, Charles, Albert Charles Murray. Murray is the I'm guy sorry. who did the bell curve. Yeah, He's no, probably, not that guy. No, yeah, no, no. Albert Murray. Not, my mistake. My mistake. Yeah. My mistake. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm participating in this upcoming event that he's that he's doing um, with some Jewish foundations about anti-Semitism and this push toward omni-Americanism, if you will, or it's less of a push toward it and more of a recognition that it already is, right? Yeah, um, that, that, and that's the way Murray frames it. It already is. You just aren't realizing right. it. You aren't looking at it the right way. And if you do. Right. Yeah. So I, so I got to learn more about Murray's work through my conversation with Greg Thomas, who's um, very knowledgeable about everything Albert Murray. <laughs> and we talked about Ralph Ellison and stuff. Who's, who was obviously influenced by Murray. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. um, it was a huge friend with Murray. They have a book of uh, a, a collection of their uh, correspondence was published a few years ago between Albert Murray and, and uh, Ralph Ellison. Yes. It's really great. It's a, it's a great collection. I need to get it. Um, and I'm inspired after my conversation with Greg, I'm inspired to learn more about Murray. The, so this, this idea of Omni American, I think is okay. I think it's good. Um, I think that, um, uh, Edward Glissant's the poetic the poetics of relation coincide with this idea of omni American because ultimately Glissant is encouraging more people, especially within the Caribbean context, but also in the context of the Americas more broadly, to think about how every person is related to the other in, in some like interesting and identifiable way, um, culturally, ethnically, and so on. And I think that, you know, this idea of creolized culture, as Glissant would put it, or this idea of omni-American culture, as Murray would put it, I think that they, they're they necessary because, again, I think more of us than not are taught to think in very binary ways, you know, like us versus I versus or self versus the other. Right. And yeah. we think about though that gets applied to culture. It especially gets applied to ideas of culture, because I would argue that black culture doesn't exist because again, it's signifying a connection with race. I think culture produces race as opposed to race producing culture. And in addition to that, I think how we've come to talk about culture in American society even when we're trying to get outside of, again, the bounds that are generally created or, or presumed, we it it's like in hyphenating something like omni-American um, is my position that it takes away from the fact that the word culture itself needn't 
any kind of qualifier. There doesn't have to be a hyphenation. It doesn't have to be multicultural yeah. because culture itself is not hegemonic. It's not of one origin, as Glissant would say in his book. So it's like, if it's not of one origin, if there are distinct parts that are working together in tandem and yada, 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 if that's culture, which that's how I view culture and cultural formation, then one needn't add some kind of disclaimer or qualifier. I think we would do well. Right. So, so the height, I mean, the, right. Cause I, anytime you hyphenate, you're referring to kinds that must be hyphenated. Right. So like you can't have a hyphenation without re a reference to the two separate things that you're hyphenating. Right. Like even, even something like multi or transcultural or, or yeah. omnicultural in some ways, I, that's what I kind of hear when I hear omni-American. It's this yeah. idea that culture and standing alone, the word culture standing alone is a single thing. And that's, again, is part is reflective of the problems that we've been grappling with together because at so long as we continue to think about culture in those ways, and so long as we feel the need to, to hyphenate or qualify, so long as we there is a need to do that, then I think it lessens our ability to grapple with culture and cultural formation in more meaningful ways, which are which that grappling matters to me because I am so interested in undoing race and racism. Right. right. And so, and then because race is often conflated with culture, that, that becomes even that much more important because the sooner yeah. we can recognize, the sooner more people can recognize that to be American is to participate in culture that is very complex, that changes depending on where you are to your point about how a category needn't be essentializing. It's like, if, if, more people understood American culture for what it is, which it, it changes depending on the state. Sometimes it even changes depending on the city or the town. You know, it's yeah. it, it might be a little change depending on the ethnicity of the participants. Um, if more people were able to look at the world in that way, I think we would have more fruitful conversations and less less nefarious dialogue about somebody trying to own cultural products and cultural appropriation and things like that, which only further the ideas of the divide. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So we should probably um, maybe stop here and save, save the rest for the next episode. Yeah. I think that helps though, because skepticism, it sounds like skepticism is more concerned with the idea that if you want to place yourself uh, beyond categories, uh, beyond a particular set of categories, probably more helpful to view those categories as actual fictions without anything really behind them that can sustain them rather than social constructions, which now means you, well, is it a valid social construction? And usually social constructionists would say yes, where the skeptic would say either no, or oh, I would need a lot of convincing on that. Um, yeah, that, that helps me think about the difference though. So, so thanks for doing this. I look forward to talking to you next Thank time. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you. Take care.